Good morning, everyone. If you would, flip over to Matthew 17. We're going to be talking about verses 1 through uh, 13 this morning. Um, and while you're getting there, I want you to tell you, tell you a story, a story of a, a friend of mine. We were friends since we were in grade school, and we, we grew up together. We went to the same college. We were, we were best friends. Um, but my friend, he, he, had a, he had this thing where he was always looking for this next best thing, this thing that was going to make his life just perfect. And happy. Now, at first, that was that was to go to college. That was to to come out and and one of his dreams was was to be a writer. He wanted to to write novels and and so he was really after that thing. And then he he realized uh, this might not work out, and so he he changed again. So he switched his major to criminal justice. He was going to go be a police officer, and then he decided that. College just wasn't for him, that that's not what was going to fulfill his life, so he's off to the army next. Well, four or five years later, when his contract gets ended, he's, that's not for me, and, and he's out again. Um, my, I love my friend uh, to death, and I hardly get to see him, but when I talk to him, it's, it's always something new, something different. And those things to, to him are going to, to fulfill his life. Um, He's always looking for for something. Now I remember having that same that same inclination, the same ideas. When I wasn't uh, a believer, I was always looking for something, and my stuff was different. But I was always looking for something that was just going to be at the top, something I could search after, something that I could live for. That's because God made us, and when He made us, He made us to worship. And so in making us to worship, we're always looking for something. Even as believers, we can come to a place in our lives where we begin to elevate other things, even good and moral things, up to the place of of Jesus Christ, our King. And we must always push away from that, push back from those things. We need to realize that that Jesus is, is perfect in all things. That his work, his work has accomplished all things for us. And it's because of him that we not only can be saved from our sins, but that we get to live in his kingdom with him forever. In a perfect world. We're talking about Jesus' kingdom in this passage as well. That is both here because of a saving work and we're still waiting for it. Jesus is the perfect king and it's only through him that that perfect kingdom comes. So they, they always tell you in, in seminary and preaching class to kind of give people a little road map of where you're going to go. So there's a couple of things that you're going to learn today. Um, first of all, you're going to learn that all I really am is a, a redneck hick from North Carolina. And you're going to learn that, all right? You're also going to learn that, that I'm, I'm a little, I'm a nerd and kind of weird. 
And I want you, though, not to focus on those things. I just want you to go home and be like, man, what was Stephen thinking bringing this guy? He's a weirdo. And then just, just leave it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want you to put those things aside and actually focus on what we're really going to learn about, though, is Jesus Christ. This is really all this passage is about is his glory, his grand glory. That he stands as ruler of the universe, king of kings, and lord of lords, and he is bringing about, and has brought about, his perfect, majestic, wonderful kingdom. And he loves us so much, he wants humans in it. He wants humans in it. So let's dive in and read our text. Verses 1 through 13. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, and talking with him, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things, but I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So a little bit of background, what's just happened in the verses previous is Jesus is speaking to to the disciples and he's he's talking to them about discipleship and the cost that it takes to follow Jesus. He says in those passages that to, to gain true eternal life, you have to lose the life you have and that those that have lost the life they have really gain true life in Jesus Christ. He's talking, of course, about about repenting, repenting in the face of the coming judgment, but he wraps up that segment with this verse. Verse 28, I'll read it to you. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And the next The next section is what we just read. And so we are going to get a portrait of Jesus in his full kingdom glory, in a sense. And if you haven't bought into the the that the kingdom is already somewhat here, then this verse should change that in your mind because Jesus just comes right out and says, Hey, the you will not taste death, you won't die until you see. The kingdom coming. 
in this passage, the disciples, they will realize that the kingdom is coming through Christ. But at the end of the day, they, they still have some confusion, as they often do as we walk through this passage. <coughs> so, here we go. Six days after Jesus says this, he takes Peter, James, and John, he leads them up on a high mountain, and there on that high mountain, he is transfigured before them, the, the Bible says. That his face shines like the sun, and his garments become white as light. We should see a couple of pictures here. One thing that we should think of is, is pictures of Jesus elsewhere in the Bible, like Revelation. So when we see Jesus in Revelation, he comes in glory and power. He is shining, typically wearing white garments that shows his kingship, his preeminence, his purity, his holiness above all things. And this is what they see Jesus as. It says here that he was, he was transfigured. Now that's an interesting phrase because as we look at this passage, we'll see that somebody else shows up. Somebody named Moses, who also went up on a mountain, who came down with his face shining. But this is important. Different, and there's an important difference. When Moses' face shone, he was reflecting God's glory. But this word in the Greek, this word means that Jesus was actually transformed. He himself expressed the direct and glorious presence of God. The direct and glorious presence of God. We we know and we understand through Scripture that that's because he is God, but he is unlike Moses. And it's important that we see that he is greater than Moses. That he doesn't just reflect God's glory. He actually is God's glory. He actually shows that from within himself, from who he is. It's important because it shows that Jesus is not only better than Moses, but he is also above us. He is also our king because while we're in the image of God and we can reflect the glory of God because we are his creation, we only reflect. We don't emanate because we're not God. And so we see Jesus here standing in full authority, full power, this glorious image of a great and mighty king. This is what Peter, James, and John see. This is what they experience. And as they're doing this, there's two people that show up, Moses and Elijah. Now, these, these guys are very important. They're very important to Scripture. They're very important to the Old Testament. And... They are talking, Matthew doesn't tell us what they're talking about, but Luke does. He tells us they're talking about Jesus' coming death. But Moses and Elijah are important for two reasons. They sum up, or they, they represent two, two different things. One was, is the law. And I'll just say this, when we were talking about Jewish culture in that time, and we even see it in the scriptures, 
that people often would refer to the, the law, the first five books, the Torah, by, it, by its writer, by Moses. He's the one that, that brought it to the people. He's the one that brought the law from God to the people. And sometimes they would just say Moses and the prophets. It happened. It was shorthand because Moses stands in a place as a representation of the law as the law bringer, as the prophet that brought the law. On the other hand, we have Elijah, a great and wonderful prophet that came and that spoke to the people of Israel, calling them to repent and turn from their sins in the face of the coming kingdom and the judgment of God that would be a part of that kingdom. And they're always expecting Elijah to return, to come back before that kingdom. And they get that from, from passages in Malachi and other places that speak of Elijah returning to make all things, things right in light of the coming kingdom of God. It's important, but it's more important later on in the passage. Overall, what we see here in these two that appear Moses and Elijah. We see, we see the law and the prophets. We see the word of God, the Old Testament. And we see two things. God's word and God's deed. God's action summed up. Because here's what we learned. Through the law, we learned about God's perfect character, perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, perfect character, perfect action. And through the prophets, we learn that God is coming to save people. God is so perfect in his action and loves us so much that he is going to bring about a kingdom, a perfect kingdom. And he wants us to repent and turn from our sins and be a part of that kingdom with him. Our word and action is summed up there. What makes God God, what makes him God, is displayed through his word and his deed. That's who Jesus is. If we read and we, we realize and we look to scripture, we'll see this. We'll see passages like John 1.1 1, 1 that talk about in the beginning was the word. The word was was with God, and the Word was God. In Hebrews 1.3, it says, He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the Word of His power. When He had made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the exact representation, the exact radiance of God's glory, and this is what this is getting at. He, ex he displays all there is to God. God. And he stands as the fullness of God, the king, even above, even above Moses, even above Elijah, these great men that brought the word of God. What does it mean to be to be exactly God? Think about your neighbor. Look to somebody to your left or right and just think about what would it mean to be you? 
for a day? What would they have to do? What would they have to look like? What would they have to act like to be you for a day? Well, for, for me, um, if you were going to be me for a day, you, you'd be uh, church planning in, in Milford. You'd work at Lowe's in Bedford. If you got off the phone with your dad, you'd probably talk like this a little bit and um, for a few minutes or an hour or so. And uh, you'd probably love your, your old beat-up truck a little too much, and you ride around and listen to too much country music and, and sing it a little too loud, and you would, have also, you would also know, or you would be somebody that, that loves people but has been really hurt by some people before. You'd have your days where, man, you were really down on yourself. Because of what other people had done to you. You'd be a lot of things. A lot of things. And at the end of the day, you can never be truly and 100% me because you haven't experienced those same things that I've been through and don't have the same likes and dislikes. But the important thing to, to realize about this passage, what it shows is that Jesus stands here in the first part of this passage as God himself. God Almighty, God All-Powerful, God All-Glorified. That's what Jesus stands as. He stands above the law as ultimately the lawgiver. He stands above the prophets as the word spoken from eternity past. He is those things because they are his word. And he sums up all of it. He sums up all of it. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the preeminent, majestic, powerful one. And we look at this passage and what we should do is just fall on our face and worship. That's it. That's it. He is the kingdom bringer. He is the kingdom bringer. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. But we, as humans, can miss that mark. Peter in verse 4, always has the best of intentions, but he always has the wrong follow-through. Peter is, is a good guy, and he loves Jesus, but when he goes and does something, it's always just a little bit off. So his suggestion here, and it's a grand suggestion, and he, he wants to do wonderful. He wants to build three tabernacles, one to Jesus, one to Moses, one to Elijah, because he, what he sees is he sees the kingdom coming. He sees the kingdom here, and he's like, man, this is awesome. Let's build some tabernacles. Let's worship these three as everything that is to be God and, and God's word. He, he sees that. He understands that. And he wants to do the right thing. It's important. Mark, when Mark displays this passage, he, he disses on, on Peter a little more. And that's 
probably honestly because Mark um, was somebody that worked closely with Peter, and we, we think that he actually probably got a lot of his source, direct source and information from Peter himself, and that's probably why he disses on Peter a little more, because Peter was dissing on himself. Peter realized his action after the fact, but Peter's intention is good. His intention is good. But his follow-through is always wrong. And we do that all the time. Because he, what he wants is he wants to raise these other things up to the place of Jesus Christ. And we can do that with our morality. You see it all the time. They're always, oh, and I haven't, I haven't met very many people that say that they do not want to go to heaven one day. But the way they think they're going, getting to heaven is through their morals. And they raise those things up to the ultimate standard. If I just do well, if I just follow God's law, there you go. I'll be set. Be perfect. For us as Christians, it could even be our morality. And what do you mean by that? Well, when we begin to trust in, in our goodness, in our works, more than we do in Christ, when we start to become fulfilled by just doing good, by being a good person, by following this certain, certain path, then we can, we can fall into that. We can worship those things as an idol as possible. We can raise political ideals, standards, up to the point where those things are above Christ in our hearts and lives. It happens all the time, and it's easy to do because those things are often good that we raise up. They're often good things. They're not bad. The thing that's that God wants for us, good ideals, good beliefs, good people in our lives that we push up above Christ. Peter is, is a Jew. He's, he's also kind of, uh, he's from Galilee. He's a uh, working class, kind of a regular old guy. He, he's not a rabbi in any way, but he's a Jew, and, and he prides himself on being a good Jew, and he sees Moses and Elijah, these heroes of the faith, these absolute, these massive people in view of of the Bible in view of, of the Jewish culture at the time. And he says, man, if I could just put them up a, ta a tabernacle in their honor just like Jesus. That's what he says. And he means well by that. But in doing so, he makes one fundamental mistake. He forgets or he doesn't realize that Christ is the preeminent one here. He is the king of Moses and Elijah, just like he's the king of Peter, James, and John. And he is the only one worthy of worship. As we move forward, though, God makes it clear before everybody, just in case you were worried, he makes it clear that Jesus is his son and that Jesus is in control. A booming voice comes out of the cloud, not 
not very much different than at Jesus' baptism, saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That's important, because number one, it shows us that this is the Son of God, this is the second person of the Trinity, this is the Messiah, the one to come. It also shows us that Jesus is absolutely perfect. For God to be well pleased with you, you have to be absolutely perfect. He's only pleased with us believers because we have Jesus. Because he has given us his righteousness and taken our sin. You have to be perfect. And Jesus is the actual, only, truly perfect one. And that's why God is pleased with him. And it's shown here in this passage. And so the disciples see this and they fall on the ground afraid. You and I would have too. I'm sure. And then Jesus comes and he says, get up, don't be afraid. And when they picked up their heads, everybody was gone and they head back down the mountain. And you would think at this point, you would think at this point that they would have gotten the, the message. You'd think that they would have gotten the message, that they would have fully understood. <clears throat> and they did to a point. They did to a point. They saw the kingdom coming. And that's why Jesus tells them, don't tell the vision to anybody until after the resurrection. Now, I was always confused about this. I've been confused about this until I studied the passage these last couple of weeks. I didn't know, well, why would he say that? That doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't he want people to tell, tell anyone? And there's a lot of different answers, a lot of different possibilities, but I think that the most likely one is the fact that Jesus coming to light as the true Messiah, as the one bringing about the kingdom, is shown first and foremost through his resurrection from the dead. Shown first and foremost through his resurrection of the dead. And if the disciples were coming down confused, as we will see, how would the crowds have reacted to them going and telling this story? But Jesus raising himself from the dead, now that is something that you can't, you can't deny. Everything hinges upon that one thing. They would have known immediately that this is the guy. There wouldn't have been any doubt, any question, any confusion. If they saw Jesus risen from the dead, they would know that that is the guy, the Messiah. And so I think personally, and you can your views can differ in this area, but I, I think personally it was to not create more confusion than there need be upon in the crowds until the appropriate time. Until Jesus had fully revealed to the world who he was. And then they could see fully and completely the picture of what he had come to do. Because they're still confused. So they ask this question. They ask this question, they say, well, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So in the Old Testament, we see passages saying that Elijah must come and to, to restore all things, make things right before Jesus returns. We see that in Malachi. But 
Jesus answers them this way. He says this, Elijah is coming to restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah already came. And the leaders and the people of Israel did whatever they wanted to him. And they realize here that he's referring to, to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. He, is the, he, he kind of sums them all up as their bookend, their summary. He's there to proclaim Christ, and he is the, the, the second Elijah, if you will, to come. That's kind of what Jesus is getting at. Um, and he's saying, look, he already came. But the people turned against him. They killed. They had him killed. They didn't believe what he had said. And then he tells them this. And he said in the same way, in the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. This is the part that they don't get until after the resurrection. That part of Jesus bringing in his kingdom is that he would suffer and that he would die. I told you I was going to, you were going to find out that I was a nerd. And so here you go. So I, one thing I really, really like, I really like reading mythology. I like reading mythology of the Greeks and, and the Romans and, and the, the Norse people. And that's one thing that I enjoy. Um, I love hearing about it because I love hearing how, how people think, how they've always thought, the things that people are hoping for, are, are searching for, the things that people believe even it, it just shows who we are as humans. And in those stories, you can just really see things that people are hoping for and they're still hoping for. And, and that's why I like reading it, because I, I, like I like to see that. I like to understand that, and it's something that I enjoy. And so I'm going to give you a story as an opposite example of what Christ did for us. So the... The Norse, which are kind of like the Vikings, right? So the Vikings, they had the, a story of one of their gods. Their god their, um, is their main god, the head of them all, is called Odin. And so if you've watched the Marvel movies recently, you'll see these guys, Odin, Thor, and Loki. Um, uh, that's kind of what they're like, but not exactly in, in Norse mythology. Um, so, but you'll see this guy named Odin, and they call him the All-Father, the Father of All, because they believe that he created, and I won't go into that, but that he created humans and, and everything else. Well, there's a story about how Odin gains control of, of the universe, if you will. Well, what Odin does is he, he has to go through this whole thing, and it's a long story, but long story short, he has to die to gain control of everything. He has to hang himself up on a tree and die there. And when I say die, it's more like a swoon. He kind of passes out and then you know, wakes up later. And it's, that's, what it, that's what it is. And so he, he dies to gain control of the entire universe. But Odin does this for... For his own reasons, because he wants control. He wants to be in charge. He wants to be victor over his enemies, and that's the way to do it. That's what he, he wants. I find that interesting, because that's a story that you and I could make up. 
we get somebody sacrificing to gain something for themselves, we understand that. It's easy to make up a story like that. We could do that. Because it, uh, it shows our own hearts. It reflects it in a way. The interesting thing and the reason I like to see that is because I like to turn and I like to look at Jesus and I say, Jesus is the exact opposite. Jesus died when he already had a kingdom. He was already in control of everything, and yet he chose to die. He chose to die to bring that kingdom to you and I, to people that he loved desperately. Jesus, Jesus didn't have to, to do that. You understand? He's already king. We see that in this passage. He is already king. But to bring his kingdom to people, for us to take part in that, he had to die, to sacrifice himself so that we could have life in his sacrifice. It's incredibly, incredibly amazing and important. And it gives validity to the story to me because it's not something we would have made up. It's not in our nature to make something like that up. Why would he do that? Why would a king sacrifice himself for somebody else? It doesn't make sense. And yet, it's what Jesus does out of his love for us. We see here a glimpse of the kingdom to come. In the kingdom that's already here in this passage. We see the glimpse of Jesus Christ standing as the powerful, awesome, majestic king of the universe. And then we see Jesus as the suffering servant who would die a wretched death on a cross. Something he didn't deserve for you and I. It should make you sad. Should make you stick to your stick to your stomach that a perfect person, somebody who had never sinned, was murdered. It should. It should hurt you somewhere deeply. But that's what he did, what he chose to do to bring about his kingdom for you and I. So we see two pictures here. Two things that make Christ who he is. The awesome king of kings and lord of lords. And the king that chose to die. Rise again. So that you and I could have life. It's an amazing picture of the gospel wrapped up in this story. And so coming to... A close with this message, you have to realize this. Jesus did all of this out of self-sacrifice. He's already king. He's already in control, and yet he loves us so much. He died out of self-sacrifice. Sacrificed himself. And so, through that, we need to raise Christ up to the position that he truly deserves. He truly deserves 
our first and foremost thought, our first and foremost place in our hearts, the first and foremost place in our lives, our choices, all need to reflect Him and who He is. And if you're a believer, we always have to keep focusing on that because we can always be like Peter and kind of forget or misunderstand and begin to raise other things and other people and other ideals up in place of Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer, then this is is what we all had the tendency to do as unbelievers, was raise, find something, anything to worship, to glorify. That could be a person, a relationship, it could be anything. For many people, it's a job. For many people, many, many people, it's how good can I live my life? What good of a person I can be? But for others, it's different things. And there are some people that have already realized that they can't find hope in any of those things. And they, so they turn to things like, like drugs, like alcoholism, to mask the pain, to bury it down. To push the pain of not having any hope down. And what we need to, to realize, what needs to come first and foremost in our life, is Jesus Christ so we can display that to other people. So that we can go forth and so that we can show that Jesus Christ is the King of all things. And it's only through Him that we gain any place in the kingdom. There are very few people, either in this room or out on the streets in this neighborhood, that if you walked up to them and said, are you going to heaven, would tell you no. They want a good afterlife. They have an idea of that, some idea of that, and they want that. Very few people will tell you no. What we're bringing to them is that the only way to actually have that peace and that hope and that comfort and that joyful kingdom is through the man who brings the kingdom, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. That's the message we hope in. That's the message we bring. And that's what we must make first. It's who we must make first and foremost in our lives. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we we pray, Lord, that you would have the first place in our hearts and our lives. God, you know that that we are not perfect, perfect people and that we often find and take other things and place them above you. But Lord, if there's one thing that I hope we all understand that that Father, Lord, you have placed Christ as the King, the preeminent one the one that is worthy of our worship. Father, please let us do that. Father, let us not look to 
to anything else but Christ. Let us not pull in together and fail to, to, to reach out to our communities because we aren't looking enough to you. Lord, help us, Father, to glorify you in everything we do because this is what this passage teaches about, that your Son is the King and it's only through the King which comes the kingdom. Let's spread that message of hope to, to our communities, to our loved ones, to our families, friends, everyone around us. And let's do it in Jesus' name. Amen.